Welcome everyone to this uh, special LSE Cities public event. I'm Fran Tonkis, the director of the LSE Cities program and the academic director of the LSE Cities Research Center. And it's my pleasure tonight to welcome Stephen Graham on the occasion of the publication of his new book, Cities Under Siege, The New Military Urbanism, uh, which you will have seen outside and also in the Waterstones bookstore. Um, I'm also pleased to welcome, in the role of respondent this evening, Gareth Jones, our colleague in the Department of Geography and Environment here at the LSE, where he co-convenes the master's program in urbanization and development. Before I introduce Stephen, let me just talk you all through the order of play for this evening. Uh, Stephen is going to talk for 30, 35 minutes about the material of the book. Gareth will then respond for 15 minutes, and we'll then have around half an hour for Q&A and, and a discussion uh, involving you from the floor. And of course, books are available for purchase in the foyer. Um, let me say a few words, though, about our guest tonight. Stephen Graham is Professor of Human Geography at the University of Durham and has previously taught uh, at the MIT in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning, which is um, a department which is closely linked to ourselves here at the Cities Program. So it's a very nice connection to underline. He has been a consultant to the United Nations Center for Human Settlements, and he is the author of Cities, War, and Terrorism, the Cyber Cities Reader, both of these he managed to publish somehow in 2004, and he's also the author with Simon Marvin of Splintering Urbanism, Networked Infrastructures, Technological Mobilities, and the Urban Condition. And for any of you who are master's students here at the LSE, this is probably um, a book with which you're quite familiar, whether on my program or, or on Gareth's or other colleagues. Um, but we're here to celebrate tonight the uh, launch of his new book, as I said, Cities Under Siege, and this is the subject matter of Stephen's talk. So can I invite you please to welcome him. Thanks very much um, for that, Fran, and thanks very much for coming along tonight. Um, what I want to do is just to sort of give you a, a very quick overview of, of the arguments that, that this, this book tries to undertake. And I'm going to start with um, a little bit of the, the origins of the book. I mean, it's worth, I think, putting it in perspective. In 2002, I was invited with Simon Marvin, uh, co-author of the Splintering Urbanism book, to a, a um, a conference in Israel titled War in the City in the 21st Century. We were umming and ahhing a little bit about how, whether to go and we ended up going, it was in Haifa University, and we turned up expecting a sort of academic debate. We were surrounded for a few days by guys wearing uh, camouflage and carrying machine guns and talking about the city as the new battleground, as the new frontier, as the new space of, of, of struggle. For, for militaries and for security forces. And we were quite shocked and astonished to discover this enormous world of sort of urban research that was going on in a sort of parallel universe to the more familiar worlds, to us anyway, of social science discussions about cities. And since then, those sorts of events have somehow haunted us, really. This was just after the 2001 attacks. It was just before the Israeli incursions through the defensive shield operations in Jenin and Nablus and elsewhere and uh, it was just before the Iraq invasion and the military were going through lots of discussions about how they were going to take various cities and so on. So that was the inception 
to this book. And really since then I've been trying to excavate, if you like, the politics of this growing obsession with cities, with urban sites and circulations, with urban spaces in discourses of security and of, of milita military deployment and military force. So let me just kick off with some of the provocative quotes that um, are coming out of some of these discussions and elsewhere. Um, Keith Dixon, a US military writer on this, this, th these challenges, suggests, as we were hearing in that Haifa conference, that cities are somehow now, if they have ever not been, of course, the high ground, the key sort of political sites to control and to control the future in the context of global urbanization. Um, more critical scholars are now suggesting that we need to, to look through at the ways in which political violence operate and permeate through everyday sites of the city, everyday circulations of the city, everyday infrastructures of the city. And we need to look at the ways in which cities are constructed not as somehow backgrounds to the imagination and propagation of war, political violence, but as, as formative and constitutive means through which those struggles operate. This is Steve Pyle's point at the bottom. Sorry this is slightly blurred, but I hope you can follow the text here. My starting point in the book, really, um, is that we need to imagine the whole discussion about warfare and counterinsurgency in the booming cities of, broadly speaking, the global south, together with the broad discourses about how so-called questions of security need to be imagined against so-called, well, apparent threats of terrorism and so on in the cities of the global north. We need to overcome very long-standing binaries about north-south divides, about the separation of western urban studies and non-western urban studies, to look at how these projects are deeply intertwined. And I think a very useful starting point there is to adopt some of Michel Foucault's work on um, what he called the, the um, boomerang effect. Michel Foucault didn't do a huge amount of work, as far as I'm aware anyway, on, on the connection between the colonial metropolis in Western, the history of Western European empires and the peripheral urban sites on the colonial, the colonial city. But he suggests that as well as imagining colonization as a means of Western um, metropolitan <coughs> power exporting its norms and its imaginaries to the cities of the Global South, that the Global South colonies were sites of sort of experimentation, where new legal, geographical, and technological attempts at controlling cities were sort of um, tried out, if you like, before being re-imported back in this boomerang effect to be normalized and inserted into the streets of Paris and London. So this is important to see this two-way relationship between the hearts, the metropolitan hearts of colonial power and the, the, the urban peripheries and rural peripheries too actually. And I think you can connect this with perhaps Frederick Jameson's point that, um, and this is on the right there, that this, this, this perspective helps us overcome the very common problem of imagining the far-off urban site and the way in which it constitutes urban life in somewhere like London. How do we constitute, how do we see the far-off colonial geographies and neo-colonial geographies of trade, of investment, of resource grabbing, 
and, and so on of militarized violence to be constitutive of, of our urban worlds in the north? And how does that pertain in the contemporary world as well as in the historical world? Let me try and be a bit more specific. When you look at the history of some pivotal social control technologies or urban planning technologies, you can see what Foucault was talking about. On the left, we have the famous Haussmann Boulevards of Paris, um, which were directly shaped by um, counterinsurgency warfare strategies in cities like Algiers. And on that example, actually, this was the attempt by the British during the mandate in Palestine to plow um, avenues through troublesome neighborhoods in the center of uh, the Palestinian city of Jaffa. The fingerprint in the middle, um, the first innovation, in, as far as I'm aware anyway, of fingerprinting as a means of attempted social control and tracking, so biopower, I suppose, in the Foucauldian sense, was to, was to um, identify and manage indigo farmers in Bengal during the British Raj in India. And similarly, you can look at histories of the pa famous panoptic prisons and how it related to um, the internal attempts to discipline and improve incarcerated people versus the, the attempts in the colonial frontier. What I, wanted, what I argue in this, in this book is that there's a whole series of ways in which this connection between the elaboration of military force against civilians and non-state fighters in counterinsurgencies in places like Kabul, uh, Jenin, um, Baghdad and other global south cities and this intensifying discourse of targeting the domestic urban sites of the north that these connections work through a whole series of similar colonial, sorry, boomerang type effects that really work across a whole range of different examples. And the book spends a lot of time going through a whole range of examples. These examples generally suggest that the, in the imagination of both security and military personnel, the cities are the key battle spaces. Okay, these are the key sites um, which require new innovation in doctrine, new innovation in technology, weaponry, and also urban and architectural design. And this doctrine is very much blurring previously more separated um, lines, lines between policing, military deployment, and intelligence, for example. Lines where policing becomes more, more militarized, military deployment perhaps becomes more, um, more of a policing operation, and all are tailored against targeting and um, the, the, basically the civilians of urban life. This is all about blurring different scales between local, global, and, and, uh, and national as well. I'll give you one example. Policing increasingly operates at a global scale. The New York Police Department has 10 offices around the world so that they can preemptively target troublesome immigrants that are deemed to be coming in to New York. This is not a national operation. A lot of this is being rescaled, if you like, to operate at the urban and the transnational scale at the same time. I'm just going to whisk through a whole range of examples that I hope in the time available will give you a sense of the spectrum of these boomerang effects and how important it is 
that we grapple with them. It's not an easy thing to grapple with them because they operate at so many different scales and that the connections, as we heard through Jameson, are often very difficult to tease out. But let me just go through these anyway. Firstly, um, it's very interesting, I think, that the discourses about cities in, say, the United States is on a domestic scale is tightly connected with the discourses surrounding the cities, the troublesome cities of Iraq. There's a two-way telescoping or boomeranging of concepts and ideas shaping those discourses. And I go into a lot of depth about this. I'll give you one example of each way, if you like. In, um, in Baghdad, during the so-called surge, when big um, walls were erected around sort of sectarian enclaves in Baghdad to try and deal with the complex counterinsurgencies going on in the city, a lot of the US military said that these were gated communities, means of uh, bringing safety and security to Baghdad in a way analogous, it was analogous to the gating of sort of suburban spaces in the US. Conversely, after the, um, the, the Katrina disaster in New Orleans, for a while there was a US Army article and various other dis discussions in the US military about the need to take back New Orleans from insurgents. A sense of um, somehow treating an in a city within the continental domestic country um, as a source, as a sort of internal refugee, a sort of um, a highly racialized politics of um, providing a, the basis for a very militarized response when arguably a much more powerful humanitarian response to that crisis would have been more appropriate. So complex combinations there. I think you can go into a whole history here about the, hist the, the ways in which uh, Western portrayals of uh, Eastern and de developing cities often involve Orientalist tropes, which Derek Gregory's done a lot of work about, which sort of intrinsically suggest that Middle East, stylized Middle Eastern cities are devious and threatening. This is an example from Time Out. And how that might perhaps relates to right-wing discourses about cities in the US as, as somehow sinful um, and pathological spaces has been argued by Steve Masek in his book, Urban Nightmares. So there's interesting sense that perhaps in the rightist and sort of militarist discourse about cities, cities anywhere are deemed to be problematic, are deemed to be the sites that are unruly and threatening. Perhaps that's not so new either. I think what emerges in a lot of these military arguments about the future is a strange sort of obsession with sci-fi a strange sort of obsession with a ruined future cityscape, a slightly dystopian view, where robotic warriors will somehow bring mastery to, to the military. This is very strong in the US. There's a great obsession with cyberpunk, for example. But this particular example comes from uh, the Canadian military, which likes to portray itself as a little bit less gun-ho. But what's very startling is this parallel obsession, which I think was powerful in the Cold War too, of the ruined cityscape and the sort of robotic <coughs> warrior. And I think you can connect some of these things, these ways in which perhaps cities are often demonized in this rhetoric, to the changing 
geography and demography of the armed forces themselves, um, who increasingly in the US anyway are being recruited from small towns, people who don't have an experience of big central cities. Um, and in the US, of course, there's a very strong divide between the democratic, this is the, the two maps there. On the left, it's the state level map of the 2004 election. Um, the light gray is the Republican sites, and the dark gray are um, the states that carry one for the Democrats. But that maps a much more complex sort of urban archipelago, if you like, where on the right, at the county level, the data suggests that the, um, the Democrats basically are a profoundly urban um, party requiring and, and basically benefiting from the, the central urban areas of the US, whilst the Republicans benefit from the ex-urban and rural areas. So I think we have to look at questions of the relationship between these portrayals of cities and national political um, geographies and cleavages as well. The second boomerang effect I want to stress is the way in which um, military and security complexes increasingly try and apply sort of defense style technologies to the domestic sites of the city. Um, there's a huge effort now in the post-Cold War to throw high-tech security surveillance um, technology honed on the battlefield to domestic sites and spaces. We're, all, we're already getting US, sorry, um, vertical drones deployed for crime enforcement. We're getting high-tech devices and sensing devices deployed to try and stop illegal, so-called illegal immigration across, um, across the Mediterranean Sea. We're getting a, a, a huge complex political economy, if you like, of security and industrial com uh, com complexes trying to sell high-tech technology as a sort of silver bullet to questions of social, economic, and environmental insecurity. You can actually map, this is not very clear, but you can map some of these connections. Think tanks, big security companies, defense companies, lobby groups, trying to push for the opening of new markets for high-tech security applications. This is a group called Bureau d'Etudes in Paris who do this mapping of the relationships, which are often very, very difficult to unravel, transnationally organized, linking the US, Europe, and Israel in particular, um, with very, very powerful lobbying groups. But this is also about industrial policy. This is about states trying to get leaders in fast booming ho homeland security markets, because the markets for these technologies is growing very, very rapidly in a time of economic decline. Thirdly, and uh, sorry this seems like a, a, a bit of a pepper pot of di disparate examples, but I'm, I'm trying to go across the width and, sp and spectrum of the book. We can see strong connections between the ways in which the physical planning and design of sec so-called security zones in cities like London, the security zone around the city of London, for example, the security zone around the Docklands, or cities like New York. This is the post-9-11 gating of security zones in and around the um, finance district and Wall Street and the government district around the city hall. There's strong evidence that these are shaped quite powerfully 
by the, the efforts to build green zones as secure bases in um, centers of cities like Baghdad. And actually, we're just, uh, we've just had proposals to build a new US embassy um, on the south bank of London, which almost deliberately invokes the architecture of a medieval keep. I don't know if people have seen the images there, with a, a big setback around it to protect from supposed truck bombs or, or attacks. And uh, even having a moat, I think, has been, has been invoked there. So the question is, to what degree can we see this building of sort of security enclaves where entry and exit is surveilled and checked? Um, this is in New York. And how does that connect with the efforts to build bases and um, green zone type enclaves in, on the frontiers of, of power? That's, uh, just to, this is from Jeremy Nemeth's work, by the way. And the bottom one is around Wall Street. These are zones that are built um, to try and securitize the finance district around Wall Street. And the gray one is around the city hall complex just to the north in New York. I think this overlaps as well quite heavily with the more temporary security zones, which emerge around mega sports events like the Olympics, the World Cup, and, uh, and so on. And also the ones that are invariably built around big political summits, where these become sort of massive shop windows for the latest security equipment and technology that the big corporations try to push as opportunities for normalizing the latest equipment, if you like, for selling on to the bigger markets that, that they await. This is the example of the APEC summit in Sydney. But there are many others, of course. And the bottom example shows you how um, very often the Israeli um, security industrial complex is, is doing very, very well in these processes. They've uh, already gained a contract with, contract with Boeing to build high-tech uh, fences along the Mexico-US border um, that deliberately imitate some of the systems that they've mobilized in, in Israel and West Bank. So complex political economies that need to be, I think, understood and unraveled um, in really powerful ways. A lot of this, I think, overlaps in turn with the wider discourses about zero tolerance, public space, and policing uh, that have been such a feature of the efforts at re urban renaissance planning in many of the cities of the global north. And you're seeing some startling overlaps here. One in particular I'll just... Just, just highlight is um, the effort to use these devices. The bottom left, it looks like an air conditioning vent. It's actually um, one of a, a wide range of technologies and techniques that are being now designed to target civilians in so-called non-lethal ways. These are called non-lethal weapons or non-lethal systems. This is a system that targets um, acoustically and sonically. It, it produces a very, very high-pitched noise that is extremely uncomfortable to people on the street. Now, on the one hand, this is being used to try and um, address mobilizations of protesters on streets, but it's even being used to, um, to actually undermine the, the, the massing of teenagers in, in Cornwall, of all places, um, because one of these systems allegedly is li literally only 
It's almost like a dog whistle. It's only listenable. It's only detectable by people of a certain age. And this is literally being, um, being sold quite widely, both, I think, as a means of this building this zero-tolerance sort of sonic warfare, if you like, into street systems. And this is a new book by Steve Goodman that I'd recommend called Sonic Warfare. It's a startling, startling piece of work. But also as part of this wider sort of criminalization and, and militarization of protest policing, which I think is deeply troubling. And I think this raises broader questions about the politics of cities, the politics of public space, and the right, so-called right to the city, which overlaps a lot with broader debates I've been interested in about how cities emerge perhaps as sort of archipelagos of enclaves. And what happens to a city where more and more of the space and circulation requires a, a, some sort of demonstration of legitimacy to access. You know, to get into certain parts of the Docklands, you now have to access, you now have to show that you have legitimate access. So there are, are shifts. This is Paul, um, Paul Virilio's point that the new bunker, and he's obsessed with bunkers, is a passage point from one to the other. I'm interested in how architectures of attempted control, this is attempted control, relate to um, technologies of surveillance that try and that are applied to these what I call passage points. But that's a bigger debate. You're probably aware here that I'm stressing a lot in this book this obsession with technology as a means of bringing security, as overcoming the the, um, the clutter and the chaos and the flux of the city. If you want an example of how this operates at the level of these boomerang effects I'm talking about, this advert pretty much is the best I've found. You see on the left it's the military half of the helicopter, on the right it's the sort of policing half, and they're both trying to sell that sensor underneath the helicopter, an infrared sensor. If you see those white images on the YouTube clips, and look at the strap line. Every night, all night, we've got your back. So it's the city as a devious space that needs to be surveilled and controlled from above. But look at the, the line above that, from Baghdad to Baton Rouge. Okay. Baton Rouge is a city in Louisiana, by the way. And this is very, very powerful in all of these efforts. There's a profound sense of what you would call technophilia. This, love of high tech as a perfect um, dream of sort of total control, total power, and sort of total uh, fantasies of the sort of technological silver bullet. And this is how the city emerges in these discourses, the clutter of concealment. It's dense, it's labyrinthine, it interrupts traditional militaries targeting other militaries because the civilian blends in. The non-state adversary blends in. And these sorts of discourses are shaping a huge range of new research and development exercises in the security industries and in the university sector all over the world and in the military sector. And again, we see big crossovers. So one example, on the left, big efforts to try and build camera systems which might track cars around a big city like Baghdad through automatically reading number plates. It overlaps a lot with con congestion charge um, systems, actually. On the right, we're talking about new types of cameras 
that might actually be able to have software which would identify things that are deemed to be a problem. This is taking it away from the human being operating. And this system I, I've discovered is actually a trial one. And it's, this system automatically detects the guy getting into the car in the yellow as normal and detects the cyclist in, with the red square as a threat. So here a lot of the questions of the politics of, of cities and public space um, move quickly into the politics of software. Who designs these systems to stipulate what's normal and abnormal in environments which we, we always celebrate as being about unpredictability? We always celebrate as being about massive diversity and um, the serendipity of, of, of urban life. This is a profoundly troubling development, I think. But we're seeing other things, that I've, as I've mentioned before, about the domestic deployment of these sorts of drone systems. Uh, bottom right, we have the Merseyside police with their experimental drone system for monitoring traffic, police, sorry, traffic and um, protests and so on. We have big crossovers as well between this massive growth of data collection. A lot of the security technologies here, are, they almost admit that there's no way they can actually um, stop a, a, someone who wants to launch a car bomb or, a, um, or perhaps a suicide bomb on the, on the streets of a city like New York or London. What they have to do is to build these massive data in advance to identify possible risks in advance. And I think that's a really important shift, the shift towards preemptive security. These systems are trying to collect lots of data in the US to do that, a huge range of data. Again, it's this dream of knowing everything in advance of the threat, because you can't identify the, um, the threat because they blend into this mass of the city. But I think there are also important crossovers, and I do a there's a big chapter in the book about this, which is all about the links between um, the piloting of drones and the uh, increasing shift to connect entertainment with military deployment. So we have a whole load of video games here, which increasingly blur with the experience of piloting these real drones, which increasingly overlap. We have, we have weapon systems where the control stations are actually designed to look like the control stations of playstations. We have a really problematic intensification of the long established link between toys and weaponry, which has been researched heavily by people like Roger Stahl. I don't know if people know his work. But also, this is moving towards questions of robots. If you have a world where the security threat is um, identified from the massive data in advance. The concern really is that you start to allow weapon systems to do that. Weapon systems to remove humans from being on the trigger and actually have um, software to do that very act of military deployment of violence. Highly problematic shift as well. Um, how am I doing for time? 
Okay, brilliant. I'm just going to whip through a few more examples and then draw to a close. I don't want to overdo this. Um, bearing in mind the point about boomerang effects and the connection between the domestic and the foreign and all the rest of it, I think it's very interesting to see how questions of borders are now at the root of these new security politics. You go into this airport, this is Frankfurt Airport, it's not a very clear image there, you'll see an image of the US flag and the German flag together. There's a very powerful sense that the discourse about homeland security coming out of the US is now permeating global airline systems, global port systems, global internet systems. There's a sense that in order to protect the US homeland, the Department of Home Security is trying to reorganize global systems of circulation. So there are efforts to securitize the ports of the world so that the containers that get to the US have been pre-cleared before they arrive on, this, on the docks of New York or LA. Efforts to do the same with visa clearance for passengers coming into the US. Efforts to do the same through internet traffic which is going through the United States. A very powerful sense of how these connections operate, often at a very banal level, is, is, quite, is quite telling when you look at the connections between something like congestion charging, very powerful in the centre of London, and efforts to build robotic militaries through robotic um, vehicles. On the right you see some of the security zones that I was talking about earlier. This is a new one being built at the bottom of Manhattan and this is the ring of steel around the finance district of the city of London just to, uh, just to the, the southwest, southeast of us at the moment. Now what I think is very telling is that these efforts to put high-tech scanning devices into cars or into street systems overlap a lot with efforts to build military vehicles which are completely robotic. And on the bottom here you see a, an experiment in 2007 where a US military research organization called DARPA actually built completely robotic vehicles. Those, these vehicles had to drive around a mock city in a, in a base in California. It was called the Urban Challenge. Let me stress again, these are, these, are, these are autonomous. This is not about remote control. Those vehicles have their own radar, they have their own GPS, they have their own computers on board, and they drive with no human supervision whatsoever. Now this is, uh, this is interesting because whilst there's a sense that uh, autonomous vehicles might be part of the military future, this has been the dream of highway planners in the US for 30 years that you might actually have a truly intelligent highway system um, where the automobile will be, you'll literally be able to sit back and have your gin and tonic whilst your vehicle will take you to the destination of choice. And if you can read that bottom, it's, it's a, a wild prediction, but there's a suggestion that this will be a strong overlap, again, and the history of automobility is, is a highly militarized one. Um, a strong overlap between this attempt to build automatic cars and automatic military vehicles. Right. I think I'm going to finish with this example. 
another example of this strange set of boomerang effects that I'm trying to highlight in the book. There's a very strong um, critical uh, response in the US to the deployment by the US military of a lot of video games which essentially involve um, highly stylized renditions of Islamic cities. I don't know if anyone's seen video games like America's Army or Full Spectrum Warrior. These are classic shoot 'em up games where you enter a sort of stylized, orientalized view of the bad guy city and you go in and you basically build, you basically wipe out the bad guys again and again. Now there's a big discourse in the US that this overlaps, this technology which is released by the US military overlaps heavily with the training systems that the military actually use. That it's a key part of the recruitment drive of the US military as it brings in the recruits to um, get them ready for deployment in the real cities. And that it desensitizes them to those players as they become soldiers to the actual acts of warfare that they then undertake. Extraordinarily they actually have similar systems for dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder once the soldiers come back through a sort of simulational exercise. And if you go around the rodeos or the um, air shows of the US, you, you can actually participate in a collective version of this. It's called the American Army's Experience. You go and stand on a, a Hummer, you see the projection of the, the city um, on this big screen, and you drive, quote unquote, through this city undertaking a mission. And I think this overlaps in a really powerful way with the proliferation of physical simulations of supposedly Arab or Global South cities, which are emerging in the US and other Western militaries' training grounds. The most startling example is bottom right there, which is in the Negev Desert, which is called Baladia, which was built by the US Army Corps of Engineers for the Israeli military. And it's almost a reconfigurable um, mock Palestinian or Islamic city that the Israeli military is able to train on before it deploys to Nablus, Gaza, Beirut or wherever. So again we're seeing strong senses here of how simulation and imagination of the demonic sort of other city as the site of the key battleground overlaps with the domestic shift towards a sort of virtual entertainment economy. And perhaps those deployment of mock Arab cities into the domestic nation are a strange shadow of the deployment of mock US cities into the far off peripheries of the world in the form of uh, military bases. Okay, um, I've covered a lot of ground here. I hope that hasn't been uh, too schematic, too um, superficial. But I think what I'm trying to hammer home in this book, and there's a whole range of other arguments about how a sort of counter-politics might be built that challenges these efforts to sort of demonize and securitize cities, to lock down urban life through high-tech security and extremely profitable public investments in um, security and military technology. What I want to stress here is that these are big challenges. These are big challenges because a lot of these discourses of militarization are very stealthy. 
they involve powerful shifts in electronic media and um, the virtual gaming culture and highly militarized um, transformations in the way the news media operate as well that we've seen in evidence since the 2001 and 2000, sorry, 91 and 2003 Gulf Wars. I think at stake here we do have to put, we have to suggest there, there, there is a lot, a, lot, a lot resting on challenging the sort of stealthy growth of what I'm calling the new militarization, the new military urbanism, because its stealthiness very much relies on this subtle relation between the growth of military targeting of counterinsurgency forces in cities that are far away with the shift towards a highly securitized and anti-urban rhetoric challenging some very, very key and powerful uh, rights to the city at home. So um, I'll stop there, but I'd like to thank you very much for your time and your attention. Thanks a lot. Stephen, may I welcome Gareth Jones to respond. Is this okay on here? Okay, well thank you um, Stephen, such a, a dynamic lecture and one which ampl amply complements um, his wonderful book. Um, I'm going to read many of my comments uh, with a few occasional uh, sort of digressions and essentially structure my comments um, in the following way, some general uh, overviews about the book itself and how I sort of engaged with that and then sort of three broad areas um, maybe to challenge Stephen uh, or to throw out to the room uh, based on sort of some of my own research uh, or experiences more, more practically um, and maybe some questions which emanate from those uh, and which maybe challenge uh, in a certain number of ways uh, some of the uh, processes described by Stephen in the book. Um, cities under siege poses a series of challenges to how we think of contemporary times, the role that cities play in shaping events and how cities are changed by those events. And I'm drawn to the observation uh, that contemporary warfare uh, and other events take place in the supermarkets, subways and industrial districts rather than the open fields, jungles and deserts uh, of the contemporary world. Though it seems to me also uh, that there's a fair amount of warfare uh, in fields, jungles and deserts uh, as well. But in breaking away from this uh, Manichean world of good and evil uh, and organised and legitimised uh, as some distinction between us and them uh, across this sort of geopolitics uh, of, uh, of north and south. The book obliges us to think about how space, technology and representations intersect. Basra and Birmingham are linked in a complex intersection of economic and political arrangements, cultural, geographic imaginations. Foucault's boomerang breaks down a division of us and them and metropole colony as somehow real 
to consider how these divisions are constructed and what these constructions hide. The shift here then is away from the city as some sort of global space, rather sort of compartmentalised and vacuum-wrapped, to an idea of the city as globalised, affected and effected by geopolitics, uh, that is it a deeply attractive notion, conceptually at least, if its material uh, outcomes are, are less so. <laughs> By shifting the optic from a concern with financial capital to politics and culture, we should see pol- cities very differently, and in particular who it is and under what impulse cities are being planned, redesigned, ignored, or hyperactively intervened in, both militarily and using a military logic. The spatial distinction between war zones there and, if you like, kind of peace zones or zones of tranquility here um, is clearly becoming very blurred if seen through the lenses of technology, corporate contracts and policy templates. Indeed, the book itself challenges many of the ideas and notions about where cities and, uh, and urban, if you like, begin and the relationships with notions of war Uh, and safety. It's interesting to think uh, to not that far uh, back, uh, at least for some of us, uh, to 1968. Samuel Huntington um, wrote a paper called The Bases of Accommodation in in Foreign Affairs in which he called for, quote, forced draft urbanisation to pacify the third world and particularly the third world poor, by which he clearly meant specifically the Vietnamese. Clearly, geopoliticians today would not equate cities with pacification in quite uh, the same way. 1968 is a relatively long time ago, and clearly one of the things, in fact, which comes through the book, um, for me, is actually the pace of change, the pace of technological change, the pace of sort of uh, political change, uh, and some of the responses to it. And we don't have to go back as far as 1968 to even get a sense of that. Um, series one of The Wire, um, in retrospect, seems almost quaint. Um, the Baltimore police are struggling with telephone intercepts uh, to control or find out about dealers who are using pagers. It's not until episode 12 that a mobile phone uh, is, uh, is brought onto the, uh, onto the script. And yet The Wire, episode, series one, was filmed eight years ago. Clearly now it almost seems like some sort of historical narrative of a sort of bygone uh, age. The frontier of technology then and of control and security is moving fast um, in terms of who controls what Paul Virilio has called the informationalization, who collects and projects data to imagine geopolitical threats, their spatial dimensions and policy action and outcomes. A highlight of the book is how Stephen navigates through the cacophony of noise from the various think tanks and US Army colleges, right-wing journals, and the web generally, and how hard geopolitics interfaces, as he's shown today, with the kind of soft geopolitics of popular culture through media, gaming, uh, and so forth. And there's, I think, also an important epistemic point, which you allude to at the beginning of the book, um, but which I think is really important, which is sort of which academic uh, sort of constituencies and disciplines are tooled up today to sort of deal with all these various kind of crossovers. You do make the point, and I certainly endorse it, um, that geopolitics is somehow the preserve 
um, of international relations experts and a few geographers. Um, and cities, on the other hand, as the preserve of urbanists, clearly needs to be challenged uh, and more synthetic accounts uh, provided. And certainly the book is, is a really useful kind of step in that uh, sort of direction. Um, three kind of broad questions uh, to raise, um, broadly around sort of three um, experiential um, vignettes, if I can indulge uh, Fran for a moment. Um, number one, um, excuse my, um, what in South Africa they call a uh, vile accent. Um, hey, we just won a war, man. It was brutal, yeah. The group of five, sorry about that, the group of five mid 20 South Africans on the 825 train from Cardiff to London on Saturday were talking about the afternoon's rugby match with Wales. War in this context was a relatively benign metaphor. But 10 minutes later, the group's discussion had changed and anecdotes were now being exchanged about guns. One described his preferences for shotguns and automatics, his mother's preference for a .22 caliber pistol, which she kept in her handbag, his father having a secret compartment in the headboard of his bed uh, where he stashed a semi-automatic. Stories of defense and danger were being exchanged across this table for, for 20 minutes or so. As I've discussed for Mexico, violence and security were here then becoming some sort of shared idiom, a topic that could be immediately and relatively equally engaged with um, by those around the table and society uh, at large. The absence in this conversation, though, um, was who this particular group felt the need to be secure from. There was a great unsaid that it was a black, urban, and potentially kind of proto-violent, but empowered uh, in other ways, perhaps, uh, group or, or class. And why they, in turn, should feel that they are targets. Ten minutes later, the same group, who now um, represented themselves as hedge fund managers, discussed various financial ruses for making money. Part of what is possibly an exaggerated claim that as many as 20% of whites left South Africa during and after the transition to democracy, the group had now benefited from the exodus of capital from their country. They reminded me that London is in fact the post-apartheid city. And if we're looking in this sort of Foucauldian boomerang, the sort of safety, the openness, the cosmopolitanism of London, its real estate booms uh, are in fact in part related to the violence and security or insecurity of places like South Africa and elsewhere. For those left behind, um, as I recall in Joburg in the late 1990s, it was a question of preparing for the worst. Acquaintances offered weaponry and training uh, to me on an ad hoc basis, did I want an AK-47 in my bedroom? Not really. My suburban upbringing had really not trained me adequately for that, I didn't feel. Their houses, they were keen to show me, had been converted to defensive use. Yet the paradox, of course, as exemplified by the gated community and picked up by Stephen, is how people live normal lives under circumstances of perceptual or discursive warfare. But how in South Africa... Um, and related to sort of some work I'm doing myself in Durban, do people create a sense of belonging um, within reduced geographies of daily life in which the powerful, the elite, the employed, the white, those with bank accounts, are hiding behind defensive architectures? 
My question here then is whether in fact the Burke's axes, its geographical axes, are as sort of in questioning the north-south is actually losing perhaps also some of what that north-south gives us. The axis of the book seems very much to me to run from sort of the US and Europe and temporarily through 9-11 to Afghanistan, Iraq, Israel and Palestine. But I wonder then what it says, what does this sort of meta-narrative of global security and security obscure and what might it say about sieges in other cities, South Africa or cities more generally in the global south, Uganda, Argentina, cities in Argentina, Uganda uh, or elsewhere. Second kind of vignette um, relates to Mexico, epitomizes in many senses a sort of this uh, challenge to the Manichean structure uh, in, in motion. Um, Mexico is going through a process in which it's not its static relationship with the United States or with the world economy, which is, um, uh, or its urban process necessarily, uh, is, is, uh, is regarded as demonic or dangerous. It's the mobility of the country. It's transnationalism, whether it's through drugs or guns or through people. Mexican cities have acquired the feeling of war zones uh, as narcos, zetas, and sicarios, um, as well as other uh, groups of young men become typified in gang-type arrangements, certainly in Juarez, Tijuana, Mexico City, and elsewhere. And in the work of people like Max Manwaring uh, at the US Army College, are threatening new urban insurgencies in his work and what he calls a coup de street, in which social capital wrought by young uh, gangs is taking over and challenging not only domestic states but also international states, challenging in this particular instance to the US in particular ways. And certainly the streets of uh, San Salvador, uh, Caracas, uh, Mexico City and so forth have become increasingly uh, militarized and indeed the military and the police uh, sort of merge together and some of my students will know I put up three slides to show militarized Mexican police Mexican army units on the border and US army units uh, in Baghdad and ask which is which and it's almost impossible to discern uh, which is which on, on a kind of visual uh, count. So the question here is, is how do we relate the accounts of cities under siege to the everyday lives of people who are residents of those cities? Here, not like uh, South Africans on the train, um, but the sort of young guys on street corners and elsewhere going about their daily business, um, but who are caught up in these kind of webs of geopolitics with increasingly uh, militarized polices. And what forms of sort of disciplines or methodological toolkits um, are required to understand what the city means for those young people uh, dealing with the militarized police, the army, uh, or private security. Thirdly, um, a 40-something-year-old male is walking into the favela of Rio, uh, Alamal, Peñas, Vidigal, and progress is constantly being monitored by spotters hanging around on corners and steps. Does one acknowledge their presence and indicate one's savant status, but also the difficulty that this will prompt interaction, or ignore them and move on? Let them do their job, and I'll do mine. Their job, of course, being to warn uh, the commando groups further up the favela uh, that a stranger is in their midst. 
A block or so along, the first young men are sitting around, 45s in their belts, submachine guns at their feet, or leaning against walls. The atmosphere can be menacing, it can be simply, and more likely, indifferent or friendly. The conventional parameter of power, um, and which also comes through a lot of the book, where power lies, but in this instance, in the urban setting, of power being associated with money, with race, and with age, and probably a whole series of other characteristics, suddenly in the favela and in other spaces in developing world cities is no longer of a great deal of relevance. The 16-year-old with the Beretta has the upper hand. For him, violence is relatively banal. The murder rate in the favelas of Rio is higher than many war zones around the world. Is this a gated community? Um, is this a subaltern security zone? in which the state is unwelcome and other powers and groups are unwelcome too. And how do we fold that into uh, some of your other accounts? The question which you leave us in the book, which I'd like you probably, uh, possibly to kind of uh, uh, explore, if you will, is, of course, what is to be done. Uh, you have the chapter at the end on counter-geographies in which you posit, and I read this one most quickly, I'm, I apologise, the contribution of activism and especially of art installation uh, and of other sort of tactics to make visible the demonising tendencies uh, of cities and of their sort of geopolitical uh, constructs and geographical imaginations. And I'm sympathetic to this idea, but as a project, what are the limits to it? Can short life art installations, media jamming exercises, taking to the streets and, and uh, occupations of public spaces really take on the military-industrial complex with all their advantages of material power and of the formation of geographical imagination. What else might be necessary and what role can research play? And I suppose in that context, do you think things are going to get worse before they get better? Thanks a lot.